So last week we began, this is a two-parter, last week we began and talked about three different emotions, common emotions to the human condition, uh, things that often get us in trouble, things that often, you know, show out the, just the, the sin of our hearts. Uh, we're going to try to get to two. I don't think we're going to make it to three today, but we'll see how far we get. Uh, I want to be mindful of your time, especially Phantom Ranchers. I know you guys need to get out the door, and I want to help you guys do that on time. But let me, let me just kind of jump right in uh, with that said, with time in mind. Uh, and just remind you, last week we had definitions about the difference between a wise emotion and a foolish emotion. Let me point those out to you again, because this is kind of our, kind of what's going to help us work through, uh, the, the different proverbs that we're going to look at. And we're going to look at several of them today. We talked about a wise emotion being this. It's a, it's a righteously appropriate and measured response to our experiences, right? Your emotions are responses to the things that happen around you, right? Uh, or they'll, they may be precursors to things that will happen in your life, but your emotions are, are usually a response. I'm joyful because of something. I'm sad because of something. I'm angry because of something, and so on and so forth. So a wise emotion is something that's measured. It's, it's righteously measured. You know, emotions are, are not in and of themselves bad or good. It's how we use them, right? And a wise emotion not only is measured and appropriate, but it's rightly submitted to what's honorable and true. I'm not reacting to falsehood. I'm reacting to something as it, as it really is, right? Or I'm reacting in a way that is truthful or honorable. I want to use my emotions for the glory of God, not have them come up as a hindrance to the glory of God being exercised in my life or the lives of others. A foolish emotion, on the other hand, is basically the opposite of that. It's an unmeasured or an inappropriately uh, or poorly measured response that's unrighteous. So when anger turns into hatred, when fear turns into crippling defeat, it's an unrighteous and unmeasured response to our experiences, often guided by what's not true or what's not honorable. Right? It's believing the falsehoods that would cause me to have wrong thinking that leads to wrong action, wrong feeling, wrong response. And as I, as I talked about last week, sometimes it's, it's, it's that it's not guided by what's true or honorable. Sometimes it will make us actually uh, think and create untruths with our wrong thinking. I talked about it being the, the tail wagging the dog. When my emotions dictate what's true rather than what's true dictating my emotions, that's a, that's a foolish exercise of emotion. That's an unrighteous exercise of emotion. So we're looking at Proverbs to help us discern with the emotions that we, we deal with every day. How do we handle them in a wise way versus a foolish way? And again, last week we discussed uh, fear and anxiety and angerness and bitterness and depression and sadness. This week we're going to try to examine three and probably two. I'll begin with the first one. I put it up on the screen. Envy, which is very related to discontentment. Envy and discontentment. So before I dive into that, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to direct us. Father, as we open up many different passages in your word today as we look through the proverbs particularly we do that recognizing that this is your word this is 
This is what you have to say to us, and therefore it's perfect. It's always true. It's also authoritative, and it's good. So Lord, would you direct our hearts and our minds to have an attitude of of receiving what you have to say in humility and also in expectation, believing in you, Lord, believing that what you say is not only true, but good. And we particularly pray that you'd help us to guide our emotions, our responses, our feelings in ways that bring you honor and ways that bring us freedom and health and ways that bring other people love and charity and compassion. Protect us from wrong emotions. Help us to see in the text today what those wrong emotions are that we might rightly repent of them, turn from them, renounce them in seeking after right emotions through Christ, through the newness of life that you give through the gospel. We thank you in advance for what you'll do and ask that you'd help us to remember what we hear today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Envy. Discontentment. They're related, right? Proverbs 27, verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. We talked about anger and wrath last week, right? They're cruel. They're overwhelming. But then Solomon says this, But who can stand before jealousy? He's he's elevating jealousy above even anger and wrath here. Who can stand before jealousy? Proverbs 14, verse 30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy makes the bones rot. You experience that? Right? Jealousy in your life, that, that kind of bitterness that can bring, that, that discontentment that can bring about that, that tremendous feeling of, why don't I have what I think I deserve? Why do they have what I think I deserve? It makes our bones rot. It's not a good feeling. Right? In fact, uh, I, I read several different places, people, people in different commentaries this week, highlighting the fact that of all of the seven deadly sins, envy and jealousy is the only one that's not any fun. Right? There's nothing fun about it. The other ones may seem fun for a while. This one never does. It's just a bad emotion. It's not like anger. It's not like fear. It's not like the other emotions that we've examined before in that those had, there's at least some redeeming quality to them. There's no redeeming quality to envy. Now, I do want to point this out. As we think about envy and we think about its tie to jealousy, they're very similar. There's a little bit of a difference to it. And here's the difference. There is such a thing as a holy jealousy in the Bible where God is said to be a jealous God. Right? You ever heard that or read that? God says, I am a jealous God. And you think, wait a minute. That sounds like you're saying you sin. No, there's a holy jealousy, and here's what makes it right. Here's what makes it a righteous jealousy. It's exercised in the defense of something that rightly belongs to him. His jealousy for his people, that's how he uses that, is a right jealousy because he is our husband. He calls us his bride, right? And so when we're unfaithful to him, when our covenant relationship with him is being held on his end, but broken our, on our end, that makes him rightly jealous for us because we belong to him. So that's a good kind of 
jealousy, right? There's no envy in that jealousy. He's not envious of the things that we turn our affections to. He's just rightly jealous to say, you don't belong to them. You belong to me. So when our affections are taken captive by false gods and desires, his jealousy is the, listen, it's the right response of love when love's object is threatened by harm. And we can exercise that same kind of righteous jealousy when our, the objects of our love, something that, that rightfully belongs to us in a different way than it belongs to God, right? But when that object is threatened by harm, we can have a jealousy that carries that same level of wholeness. But here's the thing. I'm I, I trying to think of examples of when that would appropriately be exercised. And outside of marriage... And to a lesser degree, maybe parenting, I can't think of any. (laughs) Okay? Unrighteous examples of jealousy, on the other hand, are everywhere and are rooted in what Scripture would call envy. Envy is jealousy exercised in covetousness. It's coveting something that does not rightly belong to us. And that's a blatant violation of the Tenth Commandment. What's the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything. That's your neighbor's, right? Covetousness. That's the kind of envy that we're talking about here. And one of the things that makes envy so dangerous is that we often fail to recognize just how deadly it can be. We might say, what's the harm in a little jealousy? What's the harm in a little jealousy? Well, it's here's the harm. It's so closely related to the chief sin of pride that the two can hardly be separated. Think about it like this. It was pride and jealousy that caused Satan, who at one time was the archangel of heaven, at one time was was the angel of light. It was, was beautiful. was in the service of the king, the Lord himself. It, it was jealousy and anger that caused him to rebel against God and fall from grace into eternal damnation. It was jealousy and discontentment that motivated the very first sin, human sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, it, it's what motivated them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they falsely were believing that God was withholding something good from them. It was jealousy that caused Cain to murder Abel. 1 John 3.12 makes that explicit. It was envy that propelled the enemies of Jesus to deliver him up to be crucified. Matthew 27.18 makes that explicit. And it was out of jealousy that the early church was persecuted. You can read that in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 13. And I want you to notice that how, how in many of those cases of jealousy that I just highlighted from Scripture, murder was the result. It's a serious sin. And for the Christian, there's no place for it in your life. Jealousy and discontentment not only make your own bones rot, but here's, here's the other side of it that's so damaging. It heaps an unbearable burden on other people. Right? When you're envious of somebody else, not only are, are your bones rotting because of that bitterness that you hold, but you've now heaped on them a burden they can't bear. 
Is it their responsibility? Or is it, is it, is it ultimately their um, effort or whatever that brought about whatever blessing that they have in their life that you're envious of? Or was that what God provided for them? It's an unbearable burden to put on other people. Alistair Begg points out sinful jealousy can ruin a friendship. It can decimate a fledgling romance between a young couple. It can destroy a marriage. It can shoot tension all the way through the ranks of a business organization. It can quickly quickly nullify any sense of unity on a sports team. It can foster bitterness and ugliness in a family. In fact, there's virtually no place in which jealousy is unable to do its dreadful work. Indeed, as the proverb here says, who can stand before jealousy? Again, he's saying it's worse than anger. It's more destructive. Now here's a, here's a definition for envy. Envy. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, quality, or luck. That's a dictionary definition. Let me read it again. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Now we understand that. But I would say this, we don't believe in luck, do we? As Christians, we would have to say this, and this makes it worse. (laughs) We would have to say God's providence or blessings instead. So it's a resentment or discontentment based on somebody's possessions, qualities, or God's blessing in their life. God's providence in their life. It basically says, God's given you something that I wish He'd given me instead. Which implies that God has sinned. It implies that God has shown partiality, which He does not. Acts 10.34, God shows no partiality. Or that God has withheld something good for you in order to deny you something that you deserve. Which is exactly what the lie in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden was all about. God has withheld from you. Take and eat, it's good. If you eat this, you'll have what God has. When we're envious, we harbor ill will against others because of their success, their happiness, their reputation, their possessions. And here's how you know. Here's how you know if you're being envious. You mourn at other people's gains and you celebrate their losses. That's how you know. When when other people's gains make you sad and their losses make you feel a little bit better, that's sinful envy. Does the news that somebody else is getting a pay raise make you happy for them? Or envious? Does the knowledge that another one of your friends is getting married when you're desperately wanting that for yourself cause you to despise them? Or celebrate their happiness? Or when others are getting pregnant and you've been unable Does your sorrow and pain overshadow your ability to rejoice with them? And I do want to make this clear. This is a very important point. There's a place for sorrow in disappointments. 
If, if, if those things are a desire of your heart and God has not yet allowed that for you, there's a place for sorrow. And there's a place of knowing that in our sorrow, God understands that. And He's attentive to that. And it would be okay and right and good, I think, to allow other people to enter into your sorrow and walk that road with you. But here's the difference. Here's the important difference. When your sorrow turns to envy, it's, it becomes destructive. When we begin to lament the gains of others because we're so focused on our own sense of lack, that's sinful. And it calls for repentance. What about when other people get the limelight? What about when other people get all the accolades? What about when the attention you crave is given to somebody else? Does that crush your bones? Do you not only harbor ill feelings towards them, but towards God? Because you might say, God, you've forgotten me. God, you've treated me unfairly. By the way, that word, fair, in my house with my kids, they've heard me say this many times as they've been growing up, that's the F word in my house. Fair. That's not fair. You're right, I say. It's not fair. It's not my job to provide fairness. It's my job to provide love and to individually deal with you as I see fit in love to care for you. My job is not to make sure everything's equal. You're not equal. God would say the same thing to us. I didn't promise you fairness. I promise you what's right and good in my wisdom for you. Envy makes the bones rot. Who can stand against it? I think we have a pretty clear understanding now of the problem of envy. What's the solution? What's the solution to envy and discontentment? Well, I'll state first and foremost up front again, repentance. When we recognize that, that we've sinned, the first and right response is, is one of repentance. You say, what does that mean? That sounds like a big biblical word. Well, it, it, it means a turning, a renunciation. It's a right recognition. That is wrong, and I admit that I'm guilty of it. I want to turn from it. That's repentance. right? It's not just confession. It's a recognition with the confession that it's wrong and I'm guilty and I must turn. Repentance. And then we want to see what does the Gospel have to say to us that will help us to see things rightly. And here's where I hate to disappoint you, but I'm going to say this. Before we get there, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the second emotion this morning because... The solution, the gospel word for both is pretty much the same. It's very similar. So I want to deal with them together. So before we get to that, let me talk about the second. Just to pile it on you a little bit more, right? I want you to feel a little more guilt this morning. No. 
Let's talk about desire and infatuation. And I want to define what I mean by infatuation so you understand uh, where I'm going with this. And by the way, I, I, you say, okay, you just said that, this, that, that the, the gospel answer for these two things is going to be very similar, but it, it seems like a hard right turn here to go from envy and discontentment to start talking about desire and infatuation. And I would say, okay, hear me out on this because my flow of thought is, is very close on these. That's because the infatuation and desire that I have in mind here is closely related, related to discontentment. Closely related to discontentment. When you heard infatuation, you probably thought I was going to talk about romantic desires. That's not where I'm going here. Although they may certainly be included in what we're talking about. But the kind of desire and infatuation that I want to focus on here is this. It's, it's more generally being ruled by our impulses. Okay? Just being ruled by our impulses. It's when foolish feelings overtake wisdom and we're just kind of, ah, my impulses direct the way I think, the way I act. Infatuation in this sense is a first cousin of impulse. Here's the definition of infatuation. Again, this is a dictionary definition. It's an intense but short-lived passion or admiration for someone or something. Intense, but short-lived. Admiration or passion for someone or something. And so this short-lived passion, that's the, that's the key element there, short-lived passion often leads then to hasty decisions and hasty actions. And you've heard the old, the old saying, haste makes waste, right? Well, haste not only makes waste, but it can make a huge mess of our lives as well. So Proverbs 19.2 is up there on the screen. Desire without knowledge is not good. Okay? Desire without knowledge, not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Proverbs 21.5 The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes to poverty. You remember last week, if you were here, I mentioned the axiom that goes like this. We shouldn't be ruled by our emotions. Rather, we should be guided by the truth. Right? Shouldn't be ruled by our emotions. We should be guided by the truth. We hear that a lot. And here's what I think. I think that that is most often said and applied in this situation. This is kind of what's often in mind when we, when we say that. We don't want to be ruled by our emotions. We're thinking of the person who is given to short-lived passions and infatuations who makes hasty decisions, not rooted in wisdom, but based on their feelings, right? They're ruled by their feelings. This is the person who is always looking for a new job or seeking a career change. This is the person who avoids relationship commitment because someone else who maybe seems more appealing when things get difficult in this relationship will always come along and make you want to jump to that relationship. This is the person who hops from church to church, always looking for a better experience, the hope of more fulfilling relationships or some kind of emotional boost. This is the person who's always telling you about some new life-changing plan of theirs, right? I got this new thing, uh, this, this new 
focus, this new aspiration, this new opportunity, and, and this is going to change everything. And everybody who hears them say it's like, yeah, we've heard that before. So let me ask you honestly, does that describe you? Would you recognize it in you? Because it often describes a lot of us. And I call this sort of checkout stand reactivity. Checkout stand reactivity. You know, the, when you go to the checkout stand at the grocery store, there's all those little racks of snacks and knickknacks. You know what they call those? They call those impulse items, right? They're called impulse items. That's called the impulse rack. Because you go there and all of a sudden, it's this thought that gets put into your mind and you go, ooh, I need that. Until you look at the other rack, oh, I need that. Maybe I need that more than I need that, right? Impulse. That's kind of funny, but it's helpful, right? Because we don't just do that at the checkout stand. We can do that in more serious places of our lives. And so when the proverb here says that everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty, I think the poverty of hastiness and, and, and impulsiveness is this. It's that you never find what you're looking for. Sort of like a snack or a knickknack. They never really satisfy you, right? They're short lived. You never find what you're looking for. Life is always fraught with disappointment and lack. And so if you're looking for a change, in your sense of fulfillment by giving yourself a change of circumstances or a change of scenery, you'll find that you're going to be let down 99.999% of the time. Sometimes the change of circumstances can be a God thing, right? But when we're trying to orchestrate that on our own, you're going to be let down because your fulfillment was never meant to be found in a change of circumstances or scenery. What you're doing is you're setting yourself up for a string of new disappointments. New opportunities, maybe, but opportunities that are always promising and never delivering. You know the, the great philosopher, Little Richard? Most of you aren't old enough to probably even get, catch who Little Richard was. He was, a, he was like a musician in the 50s and 60s. He was a, wasn't a great philosopher, but he said something really good. He said this, he said, the grass may look greener on the other side, but believe me, it's just as hard to cut. It's a good quote. If infatuation is a first cousin of impulse, it's also closely related to discontentment. Okay? Proverbs 27.20. I think they have that up there too, don't I? Yeah. All right. Sheol. What is that? Sheol is the biblical place of the... The, the wicked who die, right? It's, it's hell. Sheol and Abaddon. What's Abaddon? Well, Abaddon is a, is a demon. It's the name of a demon who is the gatekeeper of Sheol, the gatekeeper of the bottomless pit, according to Revelation 9, verse 11. The, the name Abaddon literally means the destroyer. So we've got hell and the destroyer are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That's a heavy verse, right? Discontentment and reckless impulse are sinful emotions here that are equated with the dissatisfaction of hell itself. That's a sobering comparison. 
So again, what's the solution? Well, recognizing the impulsiveness for what it is, discontentment, and repenting. And here's the Gospel answer for both questions. Envy, discontentment, infatuation, desire. Look back up at the, at the proverb. The first one up on the screen. 19.2 Desire without knowledge is not good. Desire without knowledge is not good. So the flip of that is desire with knowledge is good. The key is, what's the knowledge again that we need? We need knowledge. We need to be guided by what's true, in other words. Again, not by impulse, but by truth. So I want you to flip back in your Bibles to where we've been. Would you open up to Proverbs 2? If you want to use the Pew Bible, you're on page 528. Proverbs 2. Remember where Solomon started here. Remember, this is the Word of God. This is what God has to say to us. This is, this is the beginnings of what he was saying in Proverbs. Proverbs 2, verse 1. My son. He's writing Solomon to his son. So if you're a female, you can easily say here, my daughter, okay? If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. What do we need? We need knowledge. What kind of knowledge? This is the knowledge. The knowledge of God. And if we listen to what he says, and we seek after what he says attentively, we will, he says, find this knowledge. For the Lord gives wisdom, verse 6. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. So we need to listen to what God has to say. We need His wisdom. We need His knowledge. And so what I want to do on this issue of discontentment, impulse, envy, is have you flip over to another proverb that I think speaks directly to it. Proverbs chapter 30. Page 551 in that pew Bible. Proverbs chapter 30. Now Proverbs 30 and 31 are not written by Solomon. Okay? Proverbs chapter 30 was written by someone named Agur. And we don't know anything about Agur. This is the only time he shows up in the Bible, right? But I can tell you, as we read his words, Agur was a, was a godly and wise person. Listen to what he says here. Let's read the first nine verses. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. By the way, that sounds to me like someone whose bones are rotting. I'm weary and worn out. Surely, I'm too stupid to be a man. 
I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. So that's a confession. That's repentance. And then here's this understanding of God. Here's this praise for God. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And then here's a prayer. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you, God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove me far from falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now what I want us to do is I want us to focus on Agur's little prayer here in verses 7 to 9 because I think it will really help us in gaining contentment. An understanding of contentment and an experience of contentment. Notice first that he prays to God forgive him two things. And he says, before I die. So in other words, this is a prayer for now. This is a prayer for today. This is sort of like the Lord Jesus and teaching us how to pray, saying, Lord, give us this day. This is Agur's way of saying that, right? This, he's saying, I, I don't need contentment when I get to heaven. We won't need it there. I need it now, right? So what is he asking for? Two things. The first is to be removed from falsehood and lying. I think he's saying this. I don't want to believe lies. I don't want to buy into the deception, God, that you're not good. I don't want to buy into the deception that you're withholding goodness from me. I don't want to believe that the grass is greener elsewhere. I don't want to lie to myself, and I don't want the enemy to lie to me. Lord, guard me in truth. Take me far away from falsehood, far away from lying. I want what's true. And what's true? That God is good. That God is sovereign over my life. Listen, if that's a prayer that you're praying, and you should be, God, keep me from what's not true. Help me to believe what's true. Here's what you need to believe. He's good. He's sovereign over your life. That everything you have and everything you do not have is by His providence. Guided by His goodness and His sovereignty. It's for His glory. And it's for your best interest. God knows what you need. And God knows when you need it. That's the truth. Matthew chapter 6. Look up on the screen. I'll put it up here. Remember what Jesus said? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? What job should I be getting here? What should my relationship status be? What should my family situation be? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let God sort out when and how He provides for you. But the promise is, He'll provide what you need. The second thing Agar asked for is very insightful. And I'm going to read it in the NIV, which I put up on the screen too, because I think it might help grasp the meaning. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I wanted to bring it up in the ESV. It's the same idea as what's in, excuse me, in the NIV. It's the same idea as what's in your, NSV, or your ESV. <laughs> you know what I mean. But the idea of daily bread, I think, is a helpful, helpful term. First of all, because it does point us to the Lord's Prayer as he was teaching his disciples how to pray. And I think there's a tremendous parallel between this prayer and the Lord's Prayer. But it's not really a prayer about asking for a middle-class lifestyle. That's the point. Okay, Don't give me riches or give me poverty. It's not, he's not saying, I just want to be middle-class. That's my goal. Right? That's not the heart behind the prayer. The heart behind the prayer is this. It's a recognition of a daily dependence upon the Lord as the key to contentment. Right? Daily dependence on the Lord as a key to contentment. If you were here on Thursday night for the bonfire, you heard me talk about the meaning of daily bread. So I'll repeat that a little bit here because I think it's helpful. The concept of daily bread is it's a little bit foreign to us in modern society because we go to Jewel and you buy a bag of the Sara Lee, you know, wheat or white bread and you put it in your fridge and it lasts for weeks, right? But in first century context, in ancient times when the Proverbs were being written, pretty much up until the preservation of food that we've invented in the 20th century came along, bread didn't work like that. You made bread, and it was good that day, and the next day, it was good as a paperweight, right? Or a doorstop, or it was moldy. And that still can be seen today if you, if you eat good bread, right? Yesterday, my family went uh, over to the, the corner deli over here, Piatto Pronto. Shout out to Piatto Pronto. It's excellent, by the way. For sandwiches, for dinner. We usually go there and get sandwiches there for lunch. And I noticed that as we ate dinner, instead, the bread was different. It was really crusty. And in lunchtime, it's just got that perfect crust to it, right? But by dinner time, it's 
a little hard. And the reason for that is because they, they leave it out in, in these bread baskets all day, just like they would have done in ancient times. It's good for a day. By this morning, if that bread was still in that basket, you could probably beat somebody over the head with it, right? So this idea of daily bread is important because it's saying every day I need freshness, God. Every day I depend on a new provision. What was yesterday is no longer satisfying. It's no longer good. I need you today and I'll need you tomorrow. It's a dependence. It's Agar saying here, God, I don't want to be so rich that I don't have that sense of dependence. That I'd be so satisfied that I'd forget all about you. Who's God? I don't need God. The danger, the temptation in being too rich is self-contentment. Right? And he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be too poor either. The danger in poverty is self-provision. I need to go get it for myself because nobody's going to give it to me unless I do that for me. Now, is there anything inherently wrong with being rich or being poor? No, right? God is, all good gifts come from God. And if he's given you much, the idea of having much is that you'd be faithful in much, that you'd be a good steward. And God's heart is for the poor, right? But there's a temptation in being in either state, right? There's a temptation that's there. And so I think what he's saying here is, no matter my station, God, keep me in an attitude of dependence. Contentment lies in believing that God has me right where He sovereignly wants me. That's the secret to contentment. The belief that God has me right where He sovereignly wants me. I'm here in this place, in this job in this family in this situation i mean everything that you have everything that you are it's where god has sovereignly placed you uh, that's not to say don't ever leave that place it's to say be careful about your attitude towards leaving that place because if you're leaving it thinking that god has abandoned you or forgotten you You've missed out on the truth of his sovereign goodness. He's placed you there. He knows best. He's faithful to work all things for the good of those who love him. Maybe you're in a crummy place. A, God knows that. B, what might God want to accomplish through that? I don't have the living situation I wish I had. God knows that. And He's purposed your present state for His glory and your good. I don't have the family I wish I had. God knows this. And He's purposed your present state for His glory and for your good. I'm not in the career path that I desire to be in. God knows this, and He's purposed it for His glory and for your good. And He may have a wisdom that you do not yet possess. <laughs> he may have. He does have a wisdom that you may not yet possess that knows that that thing that you desire might not ever be what is best for you. 
Or he may have a timing for these things in mind that you need to learn to trust him to unfold. Waiting is hard, right? Waiting can be so hard, but there's good in the waiting. There's good in the waiting. I mean, that, that's a theme that just comes up over and over and over again throughout the Scripture. Waiting, our waiting, allows God to accomplish things in us that wouldn't happen apart from the waiting. I had a really good conversation with a, a young brother very recently who we were talking about you know, God finally answering a prayer in his life. And it, it was a long time coming. It's a long time coming. And I, and I brought this up. I said, I said, you know, in the waiting, I've seen God accomplish things in you, grow in you in, in, in amazing and, and very specific ways that wouldn't have happened apart from that length of time. And he said, you're right. I know that. If God had answered this prayer back in the beginning when I started praying it, I, I'm confident I would have gone right back to my old patterns. There's good in the waiting when God uses it for His glory and for your good. And by the way, I, I think it's important to say this too. Waiting is often a precursor in Scripture, often a precursor to mighty acts of God. I, I mentioned earlier, um, what, if you're, what if you're not getting pregnant and other people are? I know that's a deep pain for people. Did you know that in Scripture, barrenness is often a precursor to mighty acts of God? It happens over and over again. So even in those deep pains, there's a, there's a purpose in the waiting. There's a purpose in the waiting. We just have to ask Him for our daily bread. And we need to be content with the bread that He gives us each day. That's not just good for our heart's contentment. It points us constantly to Christ. What's our daily bread ultimately? Jesus is the bread of life, right? Jesus is the bread we need each day. I know we're running on time and I know Phantom Ranchers, I need to get you out of here. But let me, let me, let me just let me quickly wrap this up with a... I think I have a helpful explanation of how Jesus, Jesus is the, he's the center in our contentment. Remember our, our third study of Proverbs, we talk about the wisdom of God being embodied in Jesus. He is the wisdom of God, right? The knowledge that we need is found in looking to Jesus. And that's true when we feel the discontentment of jealousy or impulsiveness. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever station or whatever situation I am to be content. I've, I've, I know how to be brought low and I, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here it is. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can be content because I have Christ. In Jesus, my every need is met. My hope is in Jesus. My sins are forgiven in Jesus. My worth is found in the perfection of Jesus. My fear, my anxieties are answered in the salvation of Jesus. In Jesus, I have a family. In Jesus, I have a vocation and a purpose. 
In Jesus, I have the greenest of grasses because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Envy and jealousy deny that. Impulsiveness and infatuation deny that. And it's folly because it denies that which we cannot lose in Christ in favor for that which we can only lose because it doesn't belong to us in the first place. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. I would add, or the pursuit of that which doesn't belong to him in order to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott said that. I don't have time to dive into shame and guilt. I didn't think I was going to. We'll leave that for another time. And perhaps we've received all from the Lord that we needed to receive today. I trust that that's true. Your emotions, listen, your emotions are a God-given gift. They're a God-given gift, but they are tools. They're tools to be used righteously. They're not meant to wag the dog. The old axiom, we're not to be ruled by our emotions. We're to be guided by the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us today. Lord, again, may what You've said to us sink into our hearts and minds. May You form us, Lord. Would You bring about repentance where we need to repent? Would You bring about hope where we need hope, Lord? We are When we are caught in despair, when our emotions are ruling us, Lord, and our bones are rotting, we need the good news of hope in Christ. We have Him and everything we need for life and godliness in Him, Lord. Help us to fix our, our, our eyes on Him. Help us to walk with Him. Help us to ask You for wisdom that our lives would be filled with emotions that are true and honorable, that bring You glory, that don't place an undue burden on others or make our own bones rot. Thank You for the hope of Christ. Thank You for the freedom of the Gospel.